Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train's Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. If it's your first time tuning in, the show is all about work. I interview everyone from a Guinness Book of World Record holder to the Guinness Book of World Records to Congressman Barney Frank to a Muppeteer to today's guest, the spectacular statistician Nate Silver. We spend most of our lives at work, so it's just a chance to talk to people about why they do what they do when they would rather um, hurl themselves into oncoming traffic and also on the days where it's pretty exciting. Um, I can't think of a better guest. Our interview was recorded live at Joe's Pub. That's where I do the live tapings, and I strongly encourage you to come. It was two days before Halloween, but we have them every month, and I um, record them on purpose so for people who can't make it, um, they get a chance to hear it. That said, we talk about photos, so you're going to have to use your imagination and shut your eyes. And in those photos, just imagine Nate Silver and I looking so much more attractive, so hot, so sexy. This is a great podcast so far um, for Nate and I. Um, just to give you some background for those of you who don't know, Nate Silver is the managing editor of 538, which is at ESPN. He really made his mark on the national, if not international, stage when he predicted the outcome for the 2008 election. He predicted 49 of the 50 states correctly, and as a result, Time Magazine named him one of the world's 100 most influential people. Not sure if he predicted that as well. In 2012, um, in the election between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, remember that? Uh, He predicted the winner of all 50 states as well as Washington, D.C. I don't know why he gets credit for predicting Washington, D.C. correctly. I don't know anyone who couldn't. Uh, I grew up in D.C. when we re-elected a mayor, Marion Barry, after he'd been caught smoking crack. So it's not doesn't take rocket science to figure out which way uh, D.C. leans. That said, all the other 50 states, it's spectacular. And then when you look at his entire career. It is so robust. He's been an unbelievable poker player. He's also probably the first and last uh, to have a blog about uh, burrito, a burrito bracket in Chicago. Luckily, um, after Nate, most people should know that uh, 538 was at the New York Times for a long time. First, Nate was on his own, then he went to the New York Times. Um, and it's a big coup. Uh, Nate left the New York Times, which is unusual for journalists, and he went to ESPN, and we talk about that. We talk about um, why he prefers to be there and what it's also like to suddenly be managing a staff of 25 people and being an editor-in-chief. I think you're ready for this conversation. I am. And, yeah, enjoy. Here it is. I'm so thrilled to welcome, um, you may know him from 538, um, he's probably one of the, I would say, um, one of our, the greatest of our generation in terms of understanding statistics and just a fabulous human being. So I'm so excited to welcome the one and only um, Nate Silver. You can read my, can read mine, or you can read my poker face. He's got me like no other. You can read mine, can read mine, or he can read my poker face. He's got me like no other. 
mother. Welcome, Nate. It's bright up here, actually. It's really bright. I know, yeah. it's hard. I think it's the first time a statistician's ever upstaged like an actor in a, I don't know how to we, describe we it. We went from porn. Sex-forward sex advocate. <laughs> sex to success to stats. And soul. We forgot the soul, too. Um, I want to ask the question that I think is on everyone's mind, given what's going on in the country today. Um, what do you think the percentage of sexy Trump costumes to percentage of Bernie Sanders costumes are going to be out? And I, these are the ones that I saw online. <laughs> and, like, I couldn't believe... First of all, I couldn't believe that Trump was $70. Bernie, they didn't have a price tag. And the real way that these guys would look sexy... Let's look at the, the next one. Like, that's... That would be what? what you'd really get if you got sexy Trump and, and sexy Bernie. I mean, I don't know about sexy. The problem is I work on the Upper West Side, and I feel like I see someone who looks like Bernie Sanders about six times a day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, so I did, wa did want to ask you about um, growing up a little bit. Um, I didn't know, did you start playing baseball before you got into you know, reading about it? Like, what was the relationship there? I was a fairly ineffective baseball player. I think we have a photo of you, and you look very effective in it. Oh. That's pitching, you know, right? I did learn that. So if you guys have, uh, have seen the movie Moneyball or read the book, yes. um, it's all about on-base percentage. I did learn, like, the first year that they made the kids actually pitch, that they couldn't pitch for shit, right? So I just sat there and waited for four balls before three strikes or, like, leaned into the pitch, and I had, like, a... 250 batting average and a 680 on base percentage. <laughs> <laughs> and was thought of, despite being a team player, was thought of as a weenie kind of by my teammates. I'm impressed that you even played. They actually asked I me. Know not where to. you got those photos, by the way? It's like you, we agreed to do this, and then all of a sudden there's like back channel shit going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, from, it's from your significant other. <laughs> you can blame him. Thank you. <laughs> Is that T-ball or, or real Little League? I mean, I, you know, again, I advanced to the point where, where you actually throw overhand. Yeah. Um, and I kept my bat on my shoulders and, yeah, took a lot of walks. When did you get into to doing the modeling, though, and really researching baseball? So I wanted to win my fantasy baseball league, actually. I have a free DraftKings promo code if you need one. Um, and this is before Fantasy Baseball League got as big now, so I think it's pretty impressive that you knew Yeah, I mean, I've been then. motivated by you know, wanting to like win bets or like win just competitive things is what motivates me, basically. And you had them mailed to you? You had the statistics? Yeah, this is like an old league where my friend Ray and I, we had a team, and they would like mail you the results every Wednesday, and we were so angry if like the mail was late for some reason. <laughs> um, it was like our most excitement of the week, pretty much. We'd open the results and like go to pinball peats and play some video games. It was fun. That's awesome. Um, you chose to go to a really serious party school. Um, and I was just curious, because like, I know in the media you're always portrayed as this nerd. You went to University of Chicago. I imagine there were a lot of people who looked like Bernie Sanders there yeah, as it well. Was, look, Chicago is a great town. And I went there. I, I um, interviewed at a bunch of small colleges and decided I don't want to take the best years, quote unquote, of my life. That's kind of bullshit probably, right? But I don't want to take my college years and be out in the middle of Massachusetts somewhere. I'd like to be in a big city. So, and, but UFC is a great, a great place to go. Um, I grew up in a Big Ten town, though, in East Lansing, Michigan, so it kind of yeah. it felt like I was kind of at college, 
in the summer, and then I was going somewhere weird, like, in the rest of the year. But, but UFC was a great, a terrific school. And where is it? Robbie sent this photo. Where is this from? Oh, my God. Are you I'm in the middle? With I'm the in red the middle. Eyes? I had yeah, red eyes and yeah, probably smoking something and like a very long hair. Um, but it's from like an American analog set. They were some kind of twee. I'm sorry. Can you say that slowly? American analog set. They were some twee like indie band. Awesome. Yeah, we were really into indie rock. So okay, but this is helpful because I think a lot of times um, you're portrayed as this like super nerdy guy, and I, you seem very cool. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> But no, like I, I, you know, I'd like to, I hope I have, like, I hate the word, like, well-rounded, but, like, I have, like, weird different um, obsessions and addictions that kind of balance one another out, I guess. Um, but no, I mean, it's one thing we've learned at 538 is we don't take ourselves that seriously. And kind of talking to the reader like she's as smart as you are is something which I think the mainstream media doesn't do a very good job of. I think that's one of your greatest gifts is your humility in terms of presenting facts, and, and it's so... Um, wonderful, because I constantly feel like I'm learning from you, and I think that that's a huge part of that. Um, I also wanted to just ask you, because I know you had one period where I've heard you said you regretted it, and I, um, it was so poignant, I thought. So I wanted to hear a little bit about what was it like working at KPMG. Um, so in college, I, uh, I kind of worked hard my first two years, and I spent a year in London at LSE. abroad. At LSE. And then came back, and kind of my whole goal was to figure out how can I only have classes on Tuesdays, right? So I had like <laughs> six-day weekends every week. I was not terribly productive, really. Um, but took a, it was just before, it was 2000 when I graduated, just before kind of the dot-com bust, and I hadn't really thought about it and took a consulting job. And, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I've kind of lived that, that nine-to-five life, and it wasn't, it wasn't the worst thing by any means. I had, you know, coworkers who were competent and bosses who, were, who treated me decently enough, but... Um, but I have lived that life, and so you kind of realize how much value there is in doing something, even though it completely is incredibly stressful yeah. from day to day, but how much value there is in your quality of life when, look, for better or worse, we spend like roughly half our awake hours working. Maybe yes. it shouldn't be that many, but we do, and so it's a giant commitment. I'm always amazed when we, you know, if we were hiring employees, um, you know, how casual some people are about oh, should I come work here or come work there? It's like, you're going to spend half of your life here, right, for like years and years, and that's a major, major decision. But having, having lived both sides where I know it's quite existentially miserable um, to have a job that you just don't get fulfillment out of and then to have had it the other way is it's just really revelatory. I um, loved also learning that you were moonlighting. I was playing poker. Yeah, so I did, you know, take advantage of my... Boredom, I guess, but like, um, but yeah. So uh, in 2003, there was kind of an online poker boom. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Um, and I played a little bit in college. And I had a friend, Stefan, at work, who's like, "Hey, Nate, um, you know, we're gonna get a game going." And I'm, I, as I've told you, like pretty competitive, right? So, um, so I put not real money, but I started playing poker on Yahoo, which is for fake money. And, like, poker for fake money... I feel like, like Yahoo shareholders feel that way right now, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but poker for fake money sucks. It's, like, not really poker. Um, and so some scammy online site was like, hey, uh, no strings attached. Give us your credit card number. We'll give you $25 for free. No strings attached at all, of course, right? But, you know, eventually I started winning, playing real money poker online, and, like, I would kind of stay up 
very, very, very late at night and make, um, you know, hundreds of dollars playing online poker and then kind of come in comatose to work and then quit before too long. How much did you make at your height? My best year playing online poker, according to what the IRS knows. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, um, so I made a couple hundred thousand dollars um, in my best year, but I lost some of it actually back. So, um, but my peak year I probably made 180,000 playing poker online. Wow. I know that like you're not going to know your tells like necessarily, but I was wondering what is it like playing against maniacs? You know, the people who are really aggressive players. So I was really good at like exploiting maniacs and like getting in their headspace. You think I would play like a very kind of regimented style, but I kind of realized early on that um, that actually being quite aggressive um, gives you more ways to uh, to take advantage of a player who's who's weaker. I suppose, and so I didn't play like a quote ABC style of poker. It was more um, a lot of bluffing, a lot of kind of deliberately overplaying your hands, intentionally being a bit random. You want to be hard to predict, um, and that kind of became the style in poker later on. I mean, now they have like computers that play poker fairly well, and they figured out you actually um, you are supposed to bluff a lot in poker, like more than you would think intuitively. Um, but it's also really fun, right? Because you can kind of yeah. be um, like a maniac who's just on the verge of having possession of your senses still, and that like drives the actual <laughs> maniacs crazy, and that was a, a lot of a lot of fun. Is it addictive? Um, sort of. I mean, it's what was really hard is um, if it is kind of your job, <laughs> it's really hard to uh, to leave when you're down, right? If you say, "Well, I went to work today," granted, I walked like um, you know three feet to my computer, right? But I go to work today. <laughs> And I went to work and I made negative $2,000, then it's, you know, you want to finish even or ahead. But, you know, it becomes quite, quite grueling. And I think everyone, all, all poker players tilt. That's a sign for playing bad because of stress or, or emotion. Everyone tilts to some degree. Um, you know, but I would find that when, it's probably true for a lot of things, right? When I was tilting, I would play uncreatively, right? I would play very mechanically and not trying to really think about what the other person was thinking and whatnot. And so, you know, that's a kind of addiction, I suppose. But um, I'm going to stand up straight and not tilt. Um, I wanted to ask about your, your parents. They seemed really earnest. They seem very earnest people. Your father was a Sovietologist, too. Um, I was so afraid as a kid to say, like, Sovietologist, right? I brought my little um, pin for, like, free Soviet Jews. I remember, like, going to those marches. You can have it. You can give this to your dad. Oh, His work perfect. paid off. Thank you. I kept the pin. Um, but I, I was curious. Like, he was so specialized and then branched out. And I just didn't know if that had, did that have any bearing whatsoever on you branching out as well from, you know, baseball and politics? Sure it was like, absolutely so, nothing. So, Dad, you know, this country you study, like, doesn't exist anymore, right? Um, he was like, it's okay. I have tenure. But, no. Uh, <laughs> No, he, he is well-trained. He started studying, like, some of the, the spin-off republics, Estonia. He was really into Estonia for a while and Latvia and stuff. Um, and how did your parents respond? Your mom was a community, community organizer. Your father was an academic. How did they respond to you getting into poker? I mean, as long as I... They're very good, supportive parents, right? So when they knew I wasn't, like, super happy at my consulting job, so they were, they were fairly cool about it. But I think they liked the kind of writing career more. Um, so you start, well, this is after you had a burrito bracket, which we'll talk about later, but you, you start 538 on your own, and 
you do so well, and I was curious, like, what do you do now? You have this halo effect. How do you deal with your own confirmation biases? You always talk about how confirmation bias is a huge issue. How do you keep your own in check? I mean, it's, it's really tricky, right? Um, because it should involve having a lot of, of self-doubt, but now I kind of do several different things where I still write and I build models, but I also spend half my time editing and managing people. Um, yeah, how is that? Because it, it is like, I, I was trying to allude to it before, but like if you're good at writing and you are so good at writing and you also happen to be really good at building these models, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be experienced managing a staff. Like how has that transition been for you? I mean, it's taken me a little while, but I think I've gotten better at it. I'm not sure if any of my employees are here tonight <laughs> or not. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think um, I try not to intervene too much. And basically, one thing I've learned is that um, you have three fundamental strategies you can use as a manager, right? Is number one, like, let's say you think there, there's something you think is wrong that you would do differently. Um, strategy one is you can, uh, you can ignore it or capitulate and say, it's not worth picking this fight. Strategy number two is that you can uh, veto something, right? Be a dictator and say, you know what? We don't have time. This article sucks. We're not going to publish it. And strategy number three is that you can persuade someone. You can say, you know what? I want to explain to you why I think this is not the right approach. And because you're a super smart person, that's why I hired you. You might persuade me otherwise, too. So it would sound as though persuasion is always best, except it takes a really fucking long time, right? <laughs> so figuring out the ratio of strategy one, two, and three is kind of, is kind of the part that I think you learn um, with experience. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but when you first started, you were mainly anonymous. You were running, writing under Poblano, and you wrote for the Daily Cost, which is a um, wonderful, I call it a liberal website. I feel like that's fair. But I, you were not very well known, so why did you choose to be anonymous? I mean, partly so at the time I had a job, in addition to playing poker, writing about baseball, and I kind of thought, um, you know, politics and sports should not really mesh, and now I have a whole site that's all about kind of meshing <laughs> the two of them. So... Um, but it was partly like I kind of wanted to um, to not be a dilettante where people are like, oh, here's this Nate guy who knows a lot about about baseball, right? So I always hear like, if people don't like my polit political forecast, they'd be like, oh, stick to sports, Silver, right? <laughs> now like I'll go back and I do both, and they'd be like, oh, stick to politics, Silver. You don't know anything about baseball. I feel like that's such a sign of maturity, though, of realizing like I can be all of these things. I don't need to present myself just in one way. It's, it's tricky, I mean, I mean, and it requires a lot of work, right? Um, I mean, it's not about going in and, and reading some Wikipedia article and writing an right. explainer or something, right? It's about becoming immersed in a subject and, and thinking through it pretty carefully, and, you know, that is a lot of work. Um, I still didn't get a sense of how you check for your own confirmation bias. Well, m maybe I don't. No, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, um, part of it's with dialogue with people... Um, <laughs> at the office and friends, and especially people that you, um, you might disagree with, potentially. Um, you know, airing things out loud to readers where if we have conflicted thoughts about an issue, um, instead of presuming that, oh, we have this all figured out based on a discussion we had at lunch, um, we might kind of, in very candid language, have a, a, we post like chat transcripts and we have podcasts and other ways where, where we say, we want um, you to see our thinking in real time. Right? We want to open up the fourth wall and show you how we're approaching the problem um, and not have the pretense of having everything figured out. The stereotype of what I do is like very different and to some extent I have like this kind of 
halo or celebrity that that both kind of precedes me and also isn't really me and is kind of yeah. misrepresentative in some ways. And that's that's difficult. You know, it's a very high class problem to have, but that is a challenge. To have the halo effect. To have it, because sometimes you want to whisper, right? You know, sometimes you want to try something out and experiment and kind of shoot the shit and say, hey, here's a, a theory I have that might or not, might not be right. And I won't build it as being definitive, but but that's that's hard to do when you kind of achieve a certain level of, of notoriety. Maybe that was behind the idea of being anonymous, right? Yeah. Um, is that I want to kind of test these ideas out and not have people have preconceived notions about them based on what the byline is. And so when you were at the New York Times, I um, interviewed Jill Abramson, who was at the Times at the time. And um, she, we talked about you leaving um, during a negotiation process. And I wanted to hear from your side what, what <laughs> prompted you to leave the New York Times. You had, 538 was bought by them, they were there. You were doing very well. It's curious. What prompted you to leave? I'm trying a, a to figure out how, how high to dial like the candor meter, <laughs> but um, you know, I had a wonderful experience at Style Pretty Low. Sounds very muted, very right diplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> the New York Times is a wonderful institution. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed my time there, and it was great for me. You know, yes. I didn't think they were ready to build um, to build kind of a business around. 538. If you read the New York Times, some editors said there, um, you know, your last name is always is always Times, right? Um, and to you know, part of what we do is actually we kind of critique the mainstream media's understanding of things, and we're critical of the conventional wisdom. And the Times, it's an amazing institution, but it kind of perpetuates and reinforces a lot of conventional wisdom. So being able to break away from there and also being able to, you know, invest in a business, it is challenging, but we do have a couple dozen people working for us now who are really... 25 or so? 25, yeah. you know, plus or minus, depending on how you count. But, um, but yeah. So it wasn't just money that prompted you to leave? It was, it was not just money. The, um, the offer ESPN was making to build an independent 538 um, that was not just an accessory to the newsroom, but kind of has its own institutions and values. And that's why it was hard at first, is we were kind of, my uh, managing editor was like, you're learning how to fly the plane at the same time that, um, did I muck, muck, fuck up that metaphor already? But I um, wouldn't have known. I was I was going with it. I was like, I believe it. Nate yeah. Silver is saying it. <laughs> so this is the problem, true. right? I can have like an incoherent mixed metaphor, right? And I get too much yeah. credit for it. Um, but no, being able to build something really independent and kind of figure out what are our values journalistically and not just be the guy who's like, oh, and, and now it's time for the nerds to weigh in, right? Right. Um, but to kind of create our own set of, of standards and values, um, you know, ESPN, or I should say the Walt Disney Corporation, offered that yes. opportunity with 538, um, whereas the New York Times, I think, would not have as much room for growth. It's so ironic to hear of, like, a major corporation giving you that freedom versus, like, an institution that's known for its journalism. It's just interesting to hear. It is, it is strange, and, you know, the fact of the matter is that it is, it is tough in online journalism to... Um, to you know, kind of make a living. I mean, we had a million people uh, read our site yesterday, and kind of back in the day, to have a million people read the site, you'd have a staff of hundreds of people, and it'd be a newspaper, and there'd be advertising flowing in, and and you know, now it's more difficult where people have not quite figured out how to sell ads quite as well online. Um, but you know, it's still like very gratifying to be able to kind of speak in your own language on your own terms, hire really amazing colleagues who um, who hopefully think sort of like you, but not too much like you, because then you do 
become susceptible to all types of confirmation biases and then, and then publish something every day. It's, it's very satisfying. It's um, very impressive. And I wanted to ask, you started around the same time that Ezra Klein started with Vox. How do you differentiate yourself from Vox? I mean, I think in some ways we're kind of um, quite opposite from Vox, right? Where, you know, when I was kind of saying earlier, well, the idea of you read the Wikipedia page and you write like a take on it, um, that's not our view exactly. I mean, we think that people um, should show their work. And Wait, I'm sorry, I just want to clarify. So you feel like Vox, they just like take the Wikipedia page and just rewrite it? Vox publishes a lot of things every day. You know, we publish five or six articles every day. They publish 40 or 50. Um, I think the best five or 10 things they do are terrific, right? Um, they have some great people working for them. I think they also have a lot of less than terrific things that, um, you know, I guess I get sensitive because I know how hard my writers and my editors work to try and get the facts right, to not always go for the hot take that you can't really provide evidence for, right? Um, to avoid errors and mistakes. And so, you know, I obviously have some skin in the game where I feel like if people are taking a lot of shortcuts and things that have the sheen of being data-driven and maybe maybe aren't really very yeah. empirical and aren't very self-aware, really, then, yeah, I guess I get annoyed. I think you do an unbelievable job of having to balance that pressure of getting things out as fast as possible, having this halo effect so people are coming to you all the time wanting to know right away things and saying, like, I need time to actually figure this out. Um, I did want to ask, you often use a metaphor about foxes and hedgehogs, and I was just wondering from a statistical perspective, how many foxes and hedgehogs did you interview <laughs> um, before using them as the basis for your book? I mean, I'm not sure we, oh, how many foxes, like, like the furry, cute animals and yeah. stuff? Not very, none. Ab absolutely none. <laughs> um, I... I, in all seriousness, wanted to also look at how you've expanded. You've expanded into um, another passion of yours, burrito. <laughs> we, had, we sent a woman who's uh, a very talented journalist, but we um, had her take a couple of months and try and find the best burrito in America. So I asked you to send um, a couple of your favorites in um, New York. I know that they're not as good as California. They're, they're not, no. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be able to tell them apart from each other? I, I would like to think so, yeah. I mean, people have, like, these blind, like, wine tastings where people can't tell, like, a red wine from a white wine. I would think I could probably tell a good burrito from a bad burrito. All right, so we're going to try three of them, and you're going to tell me which ones they uh -oh. are. We're going to bring them oh, out. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I should have seen that bluff. <laughs> Just want to make sure it was okay to ask. And while we're waiting for the burritos to come out... <laughs> oh, oh, they're no. here. Okay, that's burrito number one. Oh my god. I'm 538. You can find out where the burritos are in your hometown, where the best ones are, whether you live in Staten Island or whether you live uh, in Athens. Although I don't think you went to Athens. All right, so do I get like, do I know what the three candidates are at least? No. Yes, oh. you do. I'm kidding. Oh. Totally teasing. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't know. All right. So, the three candidates and you guys can clap if you know these. Dos Toros. Tres Carnes. Tres Carnes. Perdón, yo puedo hablar en español. And Mission Cantina. I'm going to help you open that.
hot. Do you guys have a fork? Does anyone have a fork? Thank you. Oh, sorry, sorry. Just in case, I didn't want to get burnt. <laughs> Lizzie, thank you. Exactly. You <laughs> already <Yeah>. failed. <laughs> Okay, what's that one? Strike. Guys, give him a hand. You want to take these home? <laughs> it is a mess. See, I was right. It's a, they're a mess. The sauces, too. You can use some upper stuff with sauces. Yeah, not touching the salsa. Look, so, I mean, I know my shit, right? Yeah. Um, I don't All know. Right. I feel like she, he can read your tells. Process of elimination. He knows his shit. So, one last question. Who are you predicting for the uh, candidates? Not just for sexy costumes, but who are you predicting for the presidential candidates? It feels like a Bernie Sanders crowd to me. I think it's going to be Hillary, though. Um, <laughs> On the GOP side, I'm trying to predict, like, not Trump, although I'm more and more worried about that. But if you had to pick one, I think um, Rubio fits the profile of a traditional nominee. Maybe the GOP is broken enough that they will have a, a Trump or a, or a Cruz or a Carson. Um, but in the establishment lane, Rubio, I think, has lapped Bush and everyone else and looks pretty good. As a Democrat... Would I want the most insane person? Like, would I want Trump to possibly be the person? Or would I want someone... Of course you would want yeah. Trump, yeah. I mean, How long can I hold on to that dream? Um, I mean, I think it's going to take a while, right? Like, I think Rubio um, might win, but I don't think it'll be like, oh, everyone falls in line all of a sudden. Um, I think you'll have drama for, for months and months. And I try and talk to myself, too, about, like, um, we're kind of on record as being skeptical of Trump's candidacy, but, like... Any general election in which Donald Trump is involved would be like the best news story in the history of politics, basically. So you kind of hedge your bets a little bit that way. Um, so before you go, I want to give you a magic Nate ball. I'm sure that 538 is going to be coming out with our own uh, 538 balls. But you do such a good job of forecasting that I hope you can uh, start selling your merch. And I only need lunch or dinner. That's fine. Um, and an abacus for when you're really oh, struggling to get things out. Nate Silver, it is such a dream and pleasure to have you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you to 538, and thank you for coming on out. And you'll come back to the awards. I know you can read He's got me like no other. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you to Alex Seiner at Superfine Audio for editing this together. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you to ESPN and to Nate Silver. And definitely, definitely, definitely come to our live taping. We've got David Cross and Kelly Ripa and Greta Gerwig and Speedy Ortiz, this incredible band, and Jason Biggs and Moma's Paola Antonelli and Ellie Kemper and all these great people coming up. You can also listen to the podcast. If you enjoy what you hear, go to iTunes, leave a nice note. If you want to send us money, we will happily, happily take it. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. You can also go there to nominate folks. And otherwise, you just got to keep on going. Keep on going. I can't believe you guessed all the burritos, right? Pretty cool. Bye.